Welcome to the Podcast at the Hill. You are about to hear a message from Pastor Daniel Blaylock entitled, Between the Two Turkeys, from our series, From Grumpy to Grateful. Amen. If you have your Bible, I'm in Luke 1 today. We're going to conclude our series, From Grumpy to Grateful, and we're going to talk about life between the two turkeys. I'm talking about between the Thanksgiving turkey and the Christmas turkey. Life between the two turkeys. Amen. So let's prepare our heart this morning. Luke 1 is our text this morning. Amen. Great to have some friends of mine, uh, Kenneth and Evgenia Wilkerson with us this morning from Christway Church uh, in uh, Flowood, Mississippi. Amen. They had a little break this weekend. I'm glad they stopped in to be with us Sunday. They and their children are with us today. So we're glad to have them. Amen. Always good to have uh, my friend, Mr. Aaron Connor, in the house, home for Christmas. and Amen. His fiance is with him today. Abigail, good to have you today in the Lord's house with us. Amen. Good to have some others, some new faces I've seen today and some returning uh, uh, guests. Thank you for coming today. Meet me at the back. I want to shake your hand before you get out of here today. Amen. Luke 1 is our text. For three weeks now, the radio has already been playing. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Amen. And most of us are sort of mixed about how we feel about that, right? As soon as Halloween was over, Christmas decorations began appearing in Walmart, Target, and Hobby Lobby. And some of us felt like that was way too soon, and others of us already had our tree up by November the 1st. We sort of live on the two poles about the holidays, don't we? We're conflicted, and many times we find ourselves in one, one season or the other. Some of us are in hog heaven, or maybe reindeer heaven would be a better way to describe it. Like the guy on the movie Elf, right? The best way to spread Christmas cheer is by singing loud for all to hear. And so on November 1, you put up your Christmas tree. In fact, the only reason you have an artificial tree is no real tree could survive the two months that you have a tree up in your living room, right? And so you have an artificial one for that reason alone. You won't take it down until first, amen? Amen. The only reason that uh, you do it then is because the neighbors start noticing and making fun of you, right? You keep your Christmas tree up all year round if they let you, and your lights probably never come down. You just unplug them, right? That's Alabama, amen? That's, that's how it is, amen, amen. A few others of us are like that lead character in Charles Dickens' uh, great novel, right? We're like Ebenezer Scrooge, and we hear all of it coming, and we say, oh, it's just another day, and I don't like all of this. Bah, humbug, amen? Some of us are like that. And many of us, most of us probably, are somewhere in between those two poles, Amen. If we're honest, most of us have a love-hate relationship with the holiday season. The weeks between the two turkeys, I call it, Thanksgiving and Christmas. We're eager to be with our family. We are anxious to celebrate uh, with them, to thank God for His blessings, and to look forward to anticipating the birth of our Savior. We start the season out with great expectations. This year is going to be different than every other year has been. We're not going to get pulled under by all the, all the busyness and all the commercialization of the season. We're not going to get caught in the hustle and bustle, the hassle and the stress. This is going to be different for us. And yet, somewhere along the way, we lose our footing and down we go. And instead of being marked by tidings of comfort and joy, our season gets identified with another set of hallmarks. And the first one is, we generally get distracted. Say distracted. We get distracted and we begin to focus in on the wrong things and uh, all of a sudden we find that we are focused in on our calendars and our uncompleted items on our to-do list and all the yet-to-be-purchased gifts that we've not bought yet 
and we realize that things just aren't going. Not to mention, depending on which side you're on, what happens with your favorite football team, amen? That can be a major distraction to us during this season. We get so focused in on that. I told someone yesterday, my assignment this morning as a pastor, the Bible says to rejoice with them that rejoice and to weep with them that weep. I've just never had to do those two things at the same time before, amen? And, but that, that, that's how it is for a pastor on the day after a great ball game, right? That's how it is. And uh, we often get distracted by those things. And things that we love and that matter to us can really weigh on us more heavily than we ought to let them weigh on us. We get frustrated. Next, we go from distracted to frustrated. We feel angry. Let's be honest. A lot of Christians get angry around the holiday times. In fact, I have to turn American Family Radio off during the holidays. <laughs> Now, some of you wouldn't want to appreciate that for me, but I do because, I, you know, at some point, I'm like, I've just got to focus in on what is good and right about the season. And if I hear one more story about a manger scene being taken down or, or a cross being removed from public land or, or something like that, it just gets our blood pressure up as Christians, doesn't it? We don't like that. We sense that things are not right with our country. And during the holidays, it can really get very pointed for us because we feel like more than at other times of the year, our faith is under attack in the nation that was founded to give us the liberty to express that very faith. And we can get frustrated very easily during this time of year when we look at people who are attacking the Christian heritage of our country. We get focused in and we get frustrated by the commercialization of Christmas. It seems like that you know all the wrong things get all the attention and the spotlight during this season. And even with our children sometimes, it seems get more carried away with what is on their Christmas list than the Christ under the star that we are to celebrate during the season. Well, then we end up defeated. We end up just saying, what is the use in celebrating it all? Why do we go to the trouble? For some of us, it's even deeper than that. For some of us, it's not just we're frustrated with the culture, but we get deflated because we've had a very rough season. And for some of us, the holidays bring to mind not the best of memories. Some of us may be walking through a season of grief during the holiday season. This may be the very first set of holidays since you lost someone very precious to you, very dear to you. You may be struggling under the weight of that, and you may have noticed that Thanksgiving was very hard, and you're afraid Christmas will be even harder as you sail into this season. You know, the holidays are not easy for everyone. Um, I, I noticed that, and especially if you're from a family that is broken or maybe you're from a family that many of the people have, have passed on and you're one of the few left, it becomes a very difficult time. And we can get deflated very quickly. Sometimes it's easy for us to forget about a very important truth, and that's this. The very first Christmas, I remind you, did not go as expected either. So you know what? It's okay if you're struggling this holiday season. Can you say that with me? It's okay. It's okay. We have our hopes set so high on how wonderful everything is going to be during the season. And for some of us, it just doesn't pan out that way. You know what? It didn't pan out that way for Mary and Joseph either. Their holiday, the very first Christmas, went nothing like they had expected. I guarantee you, Mary, like every good mother, had already planned out to the nth degree what the birth of that baby was going to be like. She had everything ready. She had everything picked out. She'd already had three baby showers, she had had everything late, she had the, the, everything was monogrammed and ready to go, and she knew where she was going to take that boy home and lay him. And then all of a sudden the IRS calls and says everybody has to trek back to their husband's hometown 
to register for tax season. And here she is, about 38 weeks with child, and just got the notice that she has to take a trip all the way down to Bethlehem in order to register with her betrothed husband, Joseph. I want to tell you, that was not on her radar screen, and it certainly wasn't in her plans for what she was going to do whenever this baby came. The, the story is filled with unexpected things. Even prior to that, think about poor Joseph. Joseph never expected that his season was going to begin by having to wrestle through the painful choice of whether or not to divorce his espoused wife Mary or not because of her perceived unfaithfulness to him. And yet he's wrestling with that. That's the backdrop to our wonderful Christmas cards and the picture that we find there. As soon as the moment ends, Joseph gets a dream and he's warned that Herod is going to seek the child's life. And so very quickly we find that they're no longer in this picturesque scene where they everything looks like a, a, a postcard that we mail to one another in the holidays. No, he's packing up his family. And he's striking out for a foreign country. He's slipping across the border into Egypt to hide his family from the wrath of a deadly king. Joseph, Mary, that very first Christmas. Friends, it did not go at all like they expected or like they hoped. It certainly didn't seem like a Christmas card to them. So if you're today struggling between the two turkeys, if you're struggling during this holiday season, let me tell you, you're not very far off base from what the first couple were feeling whenever they sailed into their Christmas season to begin the whole tradition. Just like Mary and Joseph, though ready or not, and like it or not, here comes the countdown to Christmas. It is upon us. Marking down the days has always been a tradition. Mary was marking down the days, I'm sure, to when she would deliver her child. And as every woman knows, you don't really deliver, you get delivered. Right, ladies? Amen. By the end, you're just ready. <laughs> Lord, help us. Let this baby come on quickly. And here she is. And so she is delivered of this child. And she's marking down the calendar. A lot of us have that tradition. Some of you have little Advent calendars in your home that begin on January the 1st. And you open them up and there's a piece of chocolate or something inside that. And you mark down the days to Christmas. I'm sure like any expectant mother, she's marking them down. Anxious, excited, a little nervous. But have you ever taken a moment to wonder what was going on in her heart and her mind when all these things are happening? Well... The Bible tells us that the writer of the Gospel of Luke gives us a little sneak peek into Mary's heart. It's interesting to me that Luke is the only one who gives us this, this kind of detailed information about the birth of Jesus. It makes us wonder where did he get the information because Matthew doesn't have it and he's one of the 12 disciples. Mark is probably Peter's account. He doesn't have it either. John doesn't have it and he was the closest to Jesus. But the Bible says that Luke went back on a trip with Paul to the Jerusalem council and while he was there he interviewed first-hand sources and eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. One of the things we know is that Mary is probably still alive during this time. And it is very possible, though we can't prove it, that Luke got to sit down across the table from Mary, the mother of Jesus, and hear firsthand the story surrounding his birth. And that's probably how you and I got our information today. 
was because Luke very likely got to talk with her one-on-one before she left this world. That'd be an amazing thing. He got the story, and not only did he get the story of what was happening, but we know exactly what she's thinking and what she's feeling because her song is recorded for us in Luke chapter 1, beginning in the 39th verse. I want you to read it together with me today. This glimpse into her heart, this song she sang shortly after the announcement of his conception. This story, this great song called the Magnificat or the song of Mary. Read it with me today from the word of the Lord. Lift your voice. And Mary said, go on down, back up, let let me find my place here. Go go ahead, find me at, uh, let me pick up my place. I want to pick up in John, going down to verse 46. I messed John up. Y'all forgive John and me. Verse 46. Here we go. You find it there? Start with, and Mary said, read it with me. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. Mary lifts her voice up, and like all of Israel, she's been waiting on the arrival of the Messiah, the one who would restore Israel and her to God. Mary realizes that the baby in her womb is the fulfillment of God's promise, and so she bursts forth into song. She praises God, not only for what he's done, but for who he is, and she gives us four great reminders about who our God is and what he's really like. And the first thing she reminds us is she, that Jesus, the coming of Jesus, reveals God's power. Say that with me. He reveals God's power. Here he is. He's coming. Gabriel had told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. And so she's had an encounter with the power of God. How, she says, can a virgin give birth to a child? And, she, and the angel reminds her that, you know, with man this is impossible, but with God nothing shall be impossible. The power of the Lord is able to accomplish this. In verse 49 she sings, For he who is mighty, say mighty, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He is the mighty one. That's the first thing she points out, God's power. He's the mighty one. And when you and I think of might, we often think of military force, don't we? When we hear that word mighty, we think about strong. We think about a group of soldiers. We think of being armed to the teeth, prepared for battle, ready to ride into the war and win the victory. Anyone could win the battle with armies and weapons in great numbers. But what's interesting in the passage is Mary's not thanking God for any of those things. She's thanking God for sending the baby Jesus. 
You see, our God is so strong and so mighty, he doesn't need great numbers or weapons or armies in order to win the battle against darkness, death, and sin. All he needs, all he needs is a young, obedient teenage girl and one tiny, defenseless, helpless baby. Why? Because Mary understands the arm of the Lord, the strong arm of the Lord. Say the arm of the Lord. Verse 51, he says, he has shown strength with his arm. Do you see it there? The arm of the Lord is a theme that comes up all through the Old Testament. If you read Isaiah, you'll find some reference to God's mighty right arm just about in every chapter. It's over and over. It bleeds through the text of the Old Testament. But when Isaiah asks the question about the Lord's arm, he says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who is this one who will bring the victory? Who is God's mighty right arm who will defeat the enemies of sin and death and who will drive out the dark? and bring God's kingdom of light. What does God's arm look like? Well, Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3 give us the answer. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here's the answer. He will grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. When God gets ready to deliver the world from bondage to sin and Satan, death and disease, he bears his strong, mighty right arm. But it's not a powerful army. It's not a group of people riding out into battle. No, he shows us. It's not a warring angel. It's a defenseless baby. Why? Because what Mary understands is the great reversal of the Bible. The great reversal of the Bible. What is that? God has a way of turning everything on its head. You know, Jesus preached that way, didn't he? Many who are last will be, and the first will be. There's a reversal, amen? And that reversal runs all the way through the Bible. God loves to turn things upside down, or probably right side up. We probably had them upside down to begin with, didn't we? It's interesting. In the book of Acts, the the church is described, the apostles are described. It says, they who turn the world upside down have come here also. They're there. When God shows up, everything gets flipped on its head. Have you noticed that? Amen. God makes a mess out of things. Or perhaps he straightens up the mess we've made out of things. Amen. The great reversal. What does Mary understand? This little girl has read her Old Testament. She gets it. Notice what she says about this. God's going to turn everything upside down. God's power is not defined the way the world's power is defined. We look at power as being a way to get what we want in life. Spoils to the victor. Whoever wins gets control and they get to take everything, right? God says that's not the way it is in his kingdom. That's not the way he measures power or strength or might. God's power is not defined by what we can get for ourselves, but how much we can give. Power is not about force. In the Bible, God's power is all about love. At the center of the universe, on the throne of the world, sets one who is all-powerful, yes, but even more important than that, one whose heart is self-giving, other-focused love. What do we know about God from the New Testament? John tells us very clearly, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 
at the center of the universe is a heart that beats with love, a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit who are bound together in a relationship and they pour love out on one another. And they loved us so much they created a world and desire to pull us into that circle of love so that we can enjoy the love of God too. And whenever we got cut out of the circle, whenever we walked away and abandoned God, what did God do? He bankrupted heaven to bring us back into the family again. That's what it's about. God's power is about redemption. It's about salvation. It's not about getting. It's about giving his, his love and himself to other people. When Jesus comes, he turns power on its head. Verse 51, Mary sings, he has shown strength with his arm. Well, what does he do with that strength? He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Notice the reversal. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. Wow. It's a reversal. Those who come to God and don't believe they need him, he lets them go away just as empty as they came. But to those who come before his throne, recognizing and owning their brokenness, and their pain, and their emptiness, and they cry out to Him for mercy, they find that mercy. They find that grace. That's the great thing. There's a reversal that happens here. The coming of Jesus shows the power of God. Say His power. And secondly, it shows His holiness. For He who is mighty has done great things, and holy is His name. Holy. His name is holy. In the Bible, your name is your character. His character is holiness. You see, the gods of the other nations that they worshipped, none of them would have ever considered becoming a man. Now, we know those gods aren't real, but we do know that the gods that the nations worshipped affected the way they treated one another. How many of you know you become like whatever you worship? You become like whatever you worship. Whatever has your attention has you. And whatever you focus and bend your life around, you will become just like that thing. The Bible tells us it's very important to make sure at the center of our lives is the true and living God. Because if we put anything else at that center, we'll become like whatever we place there. And nothing but Jesus can satisfy our hearts. It's a dangerous thing to worship a false God. We become like what we worship. Amen? The gods of the other nations were all about power. Man was the bottom rung on the ladder. They believed, other nations believed, God made the gods made humans to be their slaves to serve them food, to bring them sacrifices so they could eat. The gods didn't care about humans. The gods just brought humans along to take care of them. But the Bible has one great message running all the way through it, and that is our God is different. Our God's not like the gods of the other nations. He's nothing like Baal. He's nothing like Molech. He's nothing like Asherah. He's nothing like the gods that the pagan nations worship. Our God is different. Say different. And different is the root of what that word holy means. Holy means other. It means different. It means strange. It means set apart. Not like the rest. He's unique among the gods. He's holy. Say holy. That's what holy means at its base. Not like everything else. He's a cut above all the others. What's true about him? Isaiah says this. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Whose name is holy. Where will you find him? He says, I will dwell in a high and holy place. Well, that's wonderful, but I can't get there. God says, there's one other place you'll find me. And you will find me with him who is of a humble and a contrite heart. 
when we couldn't get up to where God was, God stooped to come down to where we were. And all you have to do, all you have to have in order to host God in your life is a humble heart that's broken over sin and willing to receive His grace. A humble and a contrite heart, the psalmist says, He will not despise. He is near to those who are brokenhearted, close to them that are crushed in spirit, David said in the Psalms. Philippians 2 tells us that not only is God like this, but we know God is like this because Jesus was like this. And Jesus is the picture of God. Anything you believe about God that doesn't line up with Jesus is wrong. Did you hear me? Anything we believe about God that doesn't square with Jesus isn't true. Jesus is the very picture of God. He's the express image. Old people used to use the word spitting image. You're the spitting image of your daddy. You look just like him. Jesus is the pardoned expression spitting image of God the Father. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. He will not lead you astray. He is exact representation of who God is. Philippians 2 tells us what God is like. Jesus has shown us. It says he did not grasp hold of his heavenly glory. He did not cling to his rights as God. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. Charles Wesley said, emptied himself of all but love. Because love was the fundamental thing it meant to be God. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. That's a wonderful picture. That is holiness. He pours himself out. He empties himself on the cross to save us. That is the holiness of God. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought holiness meant justice and judgment and righteousness. Well, that's part of what it means, but that's not all of what it means. Holiness is the character of God. And God is holy and righteous and just. But that's not the whole truth about God. Even in the Old Testament, that's not the whole truth about God. Do you remember? We read it over and over during the season. All the Old Testament, whenever the Israelites are asked to describe God, what do they say about Him? Five or six times in the Old Testament, they say, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. That's what they say about God. Really? From the Old Testament? You better believe it. As many times as they failed obeyed God and God kept taking them back and rescuing them if they knew one thing about God it was not that he was petty and wrathful it was that he was merciful and kind and they proved that in their history they saw well what is that that's the holiness of God that's part of his holiness God has not been true to himself until he has done everything possible in his love to redeem fallen men and women by sending Jesus he reveals the holiness of God holiness is more Holiness is mercy and compassion. God's holiness, God's power is seen in Jesus. Number three, God's mercy is seen in Jesus. As we just mentioned, he tells us this. Mary focuses on verse 50. She says, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy. Say mercy. Mercy. The Old Testament word, she's speaking, it's written in Greek in the New Testament, but she's thinking in Hebrew, she's speaking in Aramaic, and the word on the lips of every Old Testament saint was the word hesed, hesed. Now, really, you don't say it like that. You've got to spit when you say it, right here? It's a Hebrew word. You say hesed. Can you say that? No, you don't, don't spit on your neighbor, but that's how you say it. <laughs> it's a great little word. It's a, it's a little word with a big meaning. 
This word is so rich that you can't translate it with one English word. In fact, in the King James, it'll put two words together. Loving kindness or tender mercy. It'll slam two words together for this one Hebrew word. Why? This word is so big. It's full of so much richness that one English word won't even translate it. What does the word mean? It is God's mercy. It is God's undeserved love. It is God's kindness. It's the kindness shown from someone in a high position to someone in a low position. It gets better. It's the favor and the mercy of someone in a high position to someone in a low position when the person in the low position deserves it the least and has actually thumbed their nose at the person in the high position. It's mercy, it's grace, it's favor, it's compassion, it's forgiveness, it's kindness, it's tenderness. It's everything that we experience in the great merciful heart of God. It's God's stubborn love toward us, even when we've rebelled against Him, that keeps on reaching out and coming back for us and rescuing us. It's the heart of a father standing waiting on a prodigal child to come home and embracing him as he makes his way back from the pig pen of life. God's mercy. But notice that it says His mercy is on those who fear Him. Say that phrase with me. On those who fear Him. Can I lovingly tell you today God's mercy is not for everybody? What, Pastor? What do you mean God's mercy is not for everybody? Over and over the Psalms have this phrase. His mercy is on them that fear Him. From generation to generation. Amen. Isn't that what Psalm 103 says? Psalm 103 describes it that way. He tells us, God, who, who is it that receives God's mercy? Listen to what David says. The end of Psalm 103. He says, verse 17, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant. Hmm. To those who keep His covenant and those who remember His commandments to do them. That's who receives God's mercy. Who receives mercy? Those who turn their hearts toward the Lord. That's who receives mercy. Let me tell you, you don't have to bat a thousand to receive God's mercy. You don't have to have a perfect performance to receive God's mercy. In fact, we don't, and that's why we need God's mercy. Amen? But what we must have is this. We must genuinely fear the Lord. We must be truly walking with the Lord to the best of our ability with the grace that He gives us. We must be the phrase that we use today would be this. We must be making an honest effort. Say that. An honest effort at walking with God. We must honestly be trying to live in relationship with God and trying with all of our heart to please Him. And if we are, then God's mercy and grace will cover the moments when we don't measure up and quite hit the mark. But we must be genuinely trying. We must be making an honest effort toward walking in that. That's what he means. His mercy is on those who fear him, Mary says. The proud who live any way they want, he scatters. The rich and powerful who don't think they need God, he puts them down from their throne and sends them away empty. But those who live their lives in light of God's word, those who try with everything in them to keep his covenant to the humble, to the needy, to the oppressed, God shows his mercy. This is what Jesus preached. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people who receive mercy are the ones who say, God, I'm trying with all my heart, and you know that I'm not measuring up in every way. But Lord, you know my heart. I really do love you, and I really am trying to walk with you. Lord, will you be merciful to me? And God's answer to people like that is always yes. His mercy 
is on those who fear him. Do you fear the Lord today? It's, it's not a fear that makes us shrink back in terror from God. It's the kind of fear that a child has from a parent. It is, it is, a, it is a, a strong desire not to disappoint our daddy. Why? Because he's going to get us, more importantly, because he loves us and we don't want to disappoint him. I don't know about you, but the hardest or worst thing that my parents could do to me was not to ground me or to give me a spanking, but it was for my sweet mama to look at me and say, I am so disappointed in you. Just whip me. (laughs) Amen. Why can't we endure that? Because we know our mama loves us and we love our mama. I think that's a hint of what it is to fear the Lord. Why do we live right? Because we fear the wrath and the judgment of God? Well, if you're a Christian, I hope that's not your main motivation. I hope your motivation is I love God and God loves me and I do not want to let him down. I reverence him. He means the world to me. And I fear him. I fear the Lord in that way. Let's close today. God's power, God's holiness, God's mercy are shown in the coming of Jesus. And lastly, God's faithfulness. Say his faithfulness. His faithfulness. Verse 54 and 55, Mary closes her song and says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to his fathers to Abraham and to his seed forever. God is faithful. God was faithful to Israel. She says it here. He has helped his servant Israel. He he says it right there at the beginning of verse 54. When they were nobodies, when they were slaves in the land of Egypt, when they were wandering around the desert without a drink, God was faithful. When they broke the covenant with God in Exodus 32, moments after having promised to follow him and trust him, When they rejected his law and went on their way, when they provoked him to anger, God was faithful. When their enemies overtook them and led them into exile, even then God didn't abandon them. God went with them and God sustained them and God opened the door for them to return to their homeland and he saved a remnant through whom he would keep his promise to send the Lord Jesus into the world. When they returned to a desolated homeland, God was still faithful. He raised up people like Nehemiah and Ezra. He raised up prophets like Malachi and Haggai and Zechariah to bring them back to God and to restore their spiritual relationship. God was faithful to Israel. All the way back before then, he was faithful to Abraham. He says it here in the verse, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants after him. He's faithful to Abraham. God remembered his promise. It's interesting to me that when Moses is on the mountain after the children of Israel have worshipped the golden calf and God says, Moses, step aside. I'm going to come down this mountain and I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. I'm going to keep my end of the agreement. What was the agreement? The agreement Israel made, sprinkling blood on the altar and blood on the people, was we're going to keep the Ten Commandments. And if we break one of these commandments, may God strike us dead. That's chapter 20. And in chapter 32, they worship a golden calf. And God says, Moses, step aside. I have my end of the promise to keep. And God's about to wade down this mountain. And what does Moses do? He steps in between God and the people. This picture of Jesus, the mediator. He comes in between God and the people. And he says, Lord, don't do this. He says, Lord, you can't, you can't do this. And he argues from several reasons. One, Lord, don't do this because the Egyptians will say, you were able to take your people out of Egypt, but you couldn't lead them into Canaan land. 
What a weak God he must be who can't deliver on his promise. God, you can't do this. Your name is at stake. And just for good measure, Moses made one more line of argument. Lord, you made a promise to Abraham. You promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit this land. Lord, yes, because you promised Abraham something. And you were not a man that you should lie, nor the son of man that you should repent. And God turned from his anger. He punished those responsible, but he spared Israel alive. Why? He remembered his covenant. He remembered his promise. He was faithful to Abraham through all the years, all their unfaithfulness, all the kingdoms that rose and fell. God was faithful. All the way back to the promise he made to Abraham. He said, I'll make your name great. I'll make you a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God kept that promise when he sent Jesus. God was faithful to all generations. His mercy is there from generation to generation, Mary says. From generation to generation, God's faithful. God's faithful to everyone, faithful to all generations. God has not changed. In every generation, he has shown himself to be loyal and reliable. The only hope for Israel, the only hope for the world, is that God keeps his promises. At the end of the day, we discover in a fresh new way that most truly, our salvation has not come because we've been faithful to God. Our salvation exists because God has been faithful to us even when we have not been faithful. Friend, that's mercy. That's loyalty. That's love. I'd argue that's holiness and that's power. Wow. God can take a failing, faltering people and through them he can still work his plan and keep his promise and rescue the world from sin and death. <laughs> Through a weak group of people like Israel? Oh, it's better than that. Through a helpless, defenseless baby breaking the silence on a Judean hillside, he can rescue the world. That's power. That's holiness. That's mercy. That's faithfulness. No wonder we sing it at Thanksgiving. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. For as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. No wonder, no wonder Jeremiah pins the words in Lamentations. Even though he watched his beloved home city be destroyed, he pins the words, Through the Lord's great mercies we are not consumed. For his compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. No wonder when God sends Jesus, does a little virgin girl visiting her cousin break forth into a song that opens with the word, My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Would you stand with me all over God's house? Pastor Chad comes and closes. We sang that line this morning, didn't we? Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. Mary's the one who says that. My spirit rejoices in my Savior God. God, my Savior. He who is mighty has done great things for me. You shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save the people 
from their sins. Jesus, Lord, Master, God, our Savior. Praise be to his name. Powerful, holy, merciful, faithful. This is the God revealed to us in the person of Jesus. The real question for you this morning is this. Do you know him? Are you trusting him? Are you walking in relationship with him? Is he the center of your life? Is everything built around him? Because if it isn't, I want to tell you, I don't know how to say it nicely. If you don't have Jesus at the center of your life today, your life is built around a black hole. And eventually everything is going to cave and fall into it. And you'll have nothing in the end. That's the way the Bible pictures life without Jesus. But can I tell you today that if you will build your life on Jesus, if you will allow Jesus to be the center and the home plate of your life, if you'll allow him to be the thing that everything else centers around, is built upon, if you'll let him be the foundation, the cornerstone of your life, then I want to tell you, you won't ever fall. You won't ever topple. And it won't matter how rough a season you're facing. It won't matter how difficult the holidays are. It won't matter what happens in the SEC or what happens on the NASDAQ or what happens in the UN or what happens on any other group of uh, initials you want to cluster together that means something to you. It won't matter in the end. Our life must be built on the center. Why? Because at the center of my life, I need a God who's powerful who can hold me together when I come undone. I need a God who's holy, not like all the other gods, all the other things that people worship. I need a God who's different. I need a God who's merciful. And when I turn my heart toward Him, He's able to make me stand in spite of myself and my weakness. I need a God who's faithful. And even when I haven't batted a thousand, He doesn't abandon or forsake me. I need someone like that at the middle of my universe to build everything on. And the only people who have that are the people who have Jesus. Maybe you've lived in this world long enough to notice that there are two kinds of people. There are people who collapse whenever the tests come. And there are people who are able to bear up and stand strong in the face of great difficulty. What is the difference? Jesus tells us the difference, doesn't he? Anyone who hears these sayings of mine and builds his life on them, Jesus said, will be like a man who builds his house on the rock. And when the winds come and the rains fall, they beat on that house will not fall because it's built on the rock. But if you build your life on anyone other than Jesus and his word, Jesus says you'll be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand and your house, your life will be about as stable as a sandcastle on the Dolphin Island beach in the middle of a hurricane. It will not last. It will fold and cave under you. Is your life built on Jesus today? Pastor, it's the holidays. You know what? The holidays are here to point us to the truth. And it doesn't matter how much turkey you've eaten or how much time you've enjoyed with your family. The point of all of this is to stop and to examine our hearts and ask the question, is your life built on Jesus? That's the question. Every head bowed, no one moving, if you can help it. I want us to have an opportunity. If you're here today, my invitation is simple. Those of us who love and honor and fear the Lord, are going to lift our voices in a song of praise before we go. We're going to thank God for His mercy. We're going to celebrate His goodness. While God's people are rejoicing, if you aren't right with God, if your life isn't centered on Jesus, and if you want it to be, I want to give you a chance to come and find a place to kneel at these steps. And when you do, 
Someone will meet you here today. Someone will meet you here. Every head bowed. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, as we sing, I pray today that God, if there's one person here today who is not building their life centered on Christ and His cross, that today would be the day something on the inside of them shifts and wakes up and says, Lord, I'm fixing this now. I will not live one more day. I will not go through one more Christmas without having Jesus at the center of my life. I want to know the God that Mary knew. I want to have a firm foundation upon which to build my life. Grant it, Lord. Draw them. Stir their heart. Show them that whatever else they're substituting for you won't make it. Lord, bless us. Turn our hearts. Keep us fixed on you. Thank you that your mercy is ours if our hearts are turned towards you. Thank you for your faithful love, your merciful kindness, your holiness that makes you different from everyone else. Thank you for your power that was proven at the cross where we were rescued. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing. The altar, if you need to come, the altar's open. Let's celebrate the Lord today thank you for listening to our podcast at the hill we pray that you were blessed by this message for more information on what's happening at the hill and to stay connected visit our website at foresthillcog.org join our facebook page facebook.com slash foresthillcog or download our app from the itunes or google play store